0: Father, we thank You for the clear testimony of Your saving grace in Amy's life. This is Your kindness to her. An undeserved kindness, to be sure. But a magnificent, eternal, and infinite kindness, nonetheless. And as always with salvation... Our hearts rejoice. Our voices sing with gratitude to the one who would do such a thing. And how is it that she or any of the rest of us can come to know salvation? How can any of us come to be righteous? But here in this Word, we have the confidence that the salvation that we need, the righteousness that we need has been provided for us and also has been given to us as a message that we might declare to a dying world. And Father, as we continue in our worship this morning, would You give us a satisfaction in the righteousness of Christ and would You give us a boldness to proclaim that righteousness which has been granted to us, we pray these things in Christ's name, Amen. According to a UPI news item from a number of years ago, MetLife has received over the years a number of excuses for people who were engaged in car accidents. Um, some of the some of the policy autom- automobile policy holders have responded to the reasons for their accidents. With words like these, an invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. The other car collided without—excuse with, me—the other car collided with mine without warning me of its intention. It's usually the way it goes. I had been driving my car for forty years when I finally fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. As I reached an intersection, a hedge sprang up, obscuring my vision. <laughs> the pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran over him. <laughs> the telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I finally hit him. My personal favorite, I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and drove over the embankment. (laughs) (laughs) We are prone to making excuses, aren't we? We live in a world that is driven by excuses. One commentator says this, The doctrine of victimology claiming victim status means that you are not responsible for your actions is beginning to warp the legal system. Now trials revolve around excuses. Traditionally, defense lawyers tried to create doubts. Now they just put the actual victim on trial. The irony of this seems to escape the victimologists. A movement that began with the slogan, Don't blame the victim, now strives to blame murder victims for their own deaths. End quote. But making excuses and being self-righteously defensive is nothing new. In fact, it started way back in Genesis chapter 3. It was the woman, Lord. It's her fault. And by the way, you're the one that gave her to me. It's your fault. So excuses for sin and excuses for lack of righteousness have always abounded. It was dominant in the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament, Israel was tempted to say, God, you can't condemn me because we are uh, part of your covenantal plan and because of our position with you, because we are descendants of Abraham, we are righteous by that alone. And the Apostle Paul suspected that when he would reveal the nature of God's providence and sovereignty and salvation that people would be tempted to make excuses in similar fashion. So, so actually in the middle of Romans chapter 9, when, when he is unfolding God's sovereign plan for choosing those who would be his, he, he addresses the issue that some might say, well, if God chooses, then he, how can he find, find fault? It's a a built-in excuse. God chooses. I'm not chosen. God can't accuse me. I have an excuse. I have a way out. And the Apostle debunks that in chapter 9 and he also begins addressing that in earnest in chapter 10, demonstrating that though God is sovereign in His choice of those who will be His, yet man is still fully responsible. Man is, in fact, completely without excuse when he comes to stand before God. No one can say... I can't be condemned because I was not chosen. All men fall into the category, I can be condemned because I have rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has always brought His salvation by grace through faith. It has always been available to all men in all places. This is nothing new. To be saved, one must believe in Jesus Christ. And to be saved, Jesus Christ is available for someone to trust in. There is no excuse for anyone. Salvation is by faith alone. And that salvation by faith alone is available to all men. And so Paul will expand on this theme in Romans 105 to 8 and he will say this, Salvation has always been by faith and it has always been available to all men. Salvation has always been by faith. And all men can respond in faith to that salvation by which they must be saved. It is by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith because Jesus Christ provides a righteousness that we could never provide on our own. And Paul in these verses demonstrates the kind of righteousness that Christ provides for us. What kind of righteousness does Christ provide for those who believe? How is Jesus Christ righteous for those who believe? And in verses 5-8, to Paul will unfold and demonstrate four ways by which Jesus Christ is righteous for those who will believe in Him. Four four means, four ways by which Christ is righteous for those who believe. First of all, he will say in verse 5, Christ is righteous. Because He did what no one else could. Jesus Christ is righteous because He did what no one else could. Remember what we said last week about verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is, He is the goal of the law. He is the, he is the thing to, the one to whom the goal, the, the, the law has always been pointing. He is, he is the one to whom the law has been saying, you can't be righteous on your own, but there is one who is coming who, who will be righteous on your behalf. So, so righteousness is to be found in Jesus Christ as he fulfills all of the Old Testament law. And notice in verse 5, as Paul finishes this statement, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So Christ is the provision of righteousness through His obedience to the law. In verse 5, he provides a reason why that statement is true. He says, for Moses' writes, because Moses' writes, I can say what I say about Christ and the law in verse 4 because of what Moses says in Leviticus. And in fact, notice... That Paul says, for Moses writes. That's a, that's a present tense. In fact, of all of Paul's quotations from the Old Testament, this is the only time when Paul uses that word write and uses it in the present tense when he quotes from the Old Testament. And it's, it's Paul's way to say he understands that Moses is dead and Moses wrote what he wrote a long time ago. But he says what Moses, when he uses this word, what he means is that wrote, Moses may have written that in the past, but it is just as applicable today. It was written in the past, but it is still true. It is still something which you need. It, is still, it still has a sense of immediacy for you. What is it that he quotes from Moses? What is it that he refers back to as a means of demonstrating that Christ is the end of the law. Well, he quotes from Leviticus chapter 18. So keep your finger or a pencil or a piece of paper and something in Romans. And, uh, we're gonna go back to Romans, or excuse me, back to Leviticus 18. In fact, Paul's gonna quote from a number of passages here. So we're gonna be back and forth to the Old Testament a few times. Leviticus 18, while it is not technically a covenant, it reads like a covenant. And it starts out, the beginning of the chapter, by asserting the one who is making a declaration, or if it were a covenant, the one who is making the covenant, and it finishes at the end of the chapter in the very same way, and then it lays out some requirements, and then it lays out some promises of blessing. And so while it's not technically a covenant, it has that covenantal form. And notice how often Moses refers to the fact that the one who gives this commandment is God in heaven. Notice verse 2. The Lord speaks to Moses and says, "Speak Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. He says something similar in verse 4. You are to perform My judgments and keep My statutes to live in accord with Him. I am the Lord your God. Verse 5, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Verse 6, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Verse 21, you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And then verse 30, at the end of the chapter, as he sums all this up, he says, thus... You are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. So all these times, I think seven times if I counted correctly, seven times he says, I am the Lord your God. It is his way to say, I have a right to make these demands of you because of my position in heaven. I am God and you are not. I am sovereign and you are not. And you must respond to me and you must follow after me. And, and this, this chapter that is on the moral and sexual and marital purity of the nation, most of the chapters about that, of all these things he says, you will keep my statutes. You must keep them. It is, it is incumbent upon you to keep them. And then notice verse 5. He says, you shall keep my statutes, you shall keep my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. In other words, if, if you keep these commandments, you will have life. There's the, there's the promise component to these things. So there, God is speaking, God is making the prom, God is making the demands, He articulates what demands He makes, and then He asserts the blessings that will come to them if they are obedient to those things. And primarily that statement in verse 5, the man may live if he does them, is a, is a promise of a blessing. What will happen if you're obedient? What will happen if the nation is obedient? If the nation as a nation is obedient, what will happen to the nation? And the promise is they'll, they'll, they'll have blessing. That the covenantal promises that were made to Abraham will be fulfilled. The nation as a nation will be saved. And this this promise of blessing is a is a promise that's repeated throughout the Pentateuch and particularly through the book of Deuteronomy. So just listen; you can follow along if I read, but I'm going to move kind of quickly. Um, just listen as I read some of the some of the reminders of the promises, the blessing that comes to the nation if they are obedient to the law of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 4:1. Now, now o Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land which the Lord your fa- the God of your fathers is giving you. You obey and then you will live and you'll go into the land and you'll keep the land. Same chapter, verse forty. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I am giving to you. Moses says that it may go well with you and that your and with your children after you and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Chapter five, verse thirty three. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn to the left, to the uh, uh, to the right, or to the left. You shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess. Chapter six, starting in verse one. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments with the, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all of His commandments, His commandments which I commanded you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey." Again, obey and there will be blessing. Chapter 8, verse 1, all the commandments which I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do so that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. Um, Chapter 28, near the end of the book, He says in verse 1, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of His commandments which I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord. Chapter 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death and blessing and curse. So choose life by obedience, in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him, for this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So over and over... Moses is saying, if you obey the commandments, if you obey God, if you obey the law, then there will be blessing that comes to you, comes to the nation, and you will experience all of the promises of the land that was promised to Abraham. But throughout the Pentateuch, it's not just this promise that um, if you're obedient, then you'll experience the blessings of life. But there's also a reminder that all of this is predicated by grace. It's not something that is merited. It is not something that is earned. It is by grace alone. So, for instance, again, in Deuteronomy, he says in chapter 7, verse 7, "...the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of the peoples, but because the Lord loved you..." and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand. The Lord the Lord did not save you. The Lord did not redeem you because of anything you did. The Lord loved you because He loved you. It was His grace. It was His kindness alone. Chapter 8, He reiterates the same thing. Uh, verse 16, In the wilderness He fed you manna which your fathers did not know that He might humble you. And that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you might say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. God kept you in the wilderness for 40 years and fed you manna for 40 years so that you would recognize your salvation, your life, your position in the land, everything that you have is not on the basis of what you have done or who you are, but on the basis of His grace alone. He will say the same thing in chapter 9, verses 4 and following. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord has driven them out from before you, the nations, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice verse 6. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord is giving you this land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. It's not for your goodness. In fact, it is in spite of your stubbornness. It is in spite of your rebellion. Why does God do these things? Because He is a God of immense grace. He will say something similar in chapter 15. Verse 15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord redeemed you. Therefore I am commanding you this today. It is not because of anything you have done. It is not because of what you accomplished. It is not because of your position. You were enslaved, and He is the one who liberated you. Over and over and over and over, we see it is by grace alone that you've been saved. Keeping the law doesn't save anyone. In fact, if you read if you read Leviticus 18:15, carefully and precisely, he says, "You shall keep my statutes and judge, my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. You have to keep them all if you want life." Well, who can do that? No one. And that's the point, because, remember Romans 10:4. The end of the law for righteousness is Christ. So no one can keep this on their own. No one can maintain life on their own. And this is is what Paul has been reminding us of all throughout his book, that that there is none that is righteous. Remember what he said in Romans chapter 2, verse 6 and following, talking about the judgment of God. He says, God will judge when will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they'll receive eternal life. But those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, for there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, if you want righteousness, you've got to keep it all And do it all. And if you can keep the entire law, then God will bless you with life. But if you don't, then you'll be condemned. And this is why Paul says what he does at the end of chapter 3, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No one will gets righteousness by obeying the law on their own. It didn't happen in the Old Testament. It didn't happen under Moses. It didn't happen in the New Testament. It won't ever happen. It has never happened. It has always been that we receive righteousness by grace alone. But even in this statement that Paul alludes to in Romans chapter 10, and that he quotes from Leviticus 18, there's still hope, isn't there? Because if you're, if you're thinking carefully, you're recognizing that, well, well, I don't keep the law and I can't gain righteousness on my own through the keeping of the law. There is one man who did. And so when Paul says, There is a righteousness which is based on the law and that one shall live by that righteousness. There is a righteousness that comes through the law to you and to me. And we get life through that through the One who maintained the law, who kept the law, who was obedient to the law. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. The law points to him as the provision of the very righteousness that we need. That's why we read earlier from Romans chapter 5. Remember verse 17? For if by the transgression of the one death spread through the one, or excuse me, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. He kept the law, he maintained the law, and in his keeping of the law we gain his righteousness when we believe in him. As we look at this verse, Paul wants us to be hopeful by recognizing two realities. That we are utterly incapable of keeping the law on our own. We we cannot be righteous on our own. We are desperately under the domination and control of sin. We cannot conquer it ourselves. Did you catch what Amy said in her testimony? I don't remember exactly how you put it. But she said, "I I was dominated by sin. I had all this sin that I committed. And I don't think he used the word, but essentially I couldn't stop. And I'm thinking, maybe you were thinking with me, I mean, she was like six years old. I mean, how bad could she be? Desperately bad. Bad enough to rightly be deserving of God's infinite wrath. And and she grasps that. What's her hope? Not, well, I'll just try harder. Her hope is the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Listen, Paul wants us to see ourselves rightly that we are nothing without Jesus Christ and He wants us to see Christ rightly, that He is everything and we have everything that He is when we are in Him. It's not just that we're kind of a better version of ourselves. Friends, we are like Christ. The perfect righteousness that that Christ did, God looks at us and sees Christ's life poured over ours as if we did everything that Christ did. Friends, this is exactly the kind of message we need to hear always and even more so on a day of baptism and a day of a parental dedication. We do nothing to save ourselves. All we can do is believe by saying, I have nothing. God, You must provide everything that I need. And He does in Jesus Christ. How is Jesus Christ righteous for those who believe He is righteous because He did what no one else could? And by believing in Him, we can have that righteousness. What does that kind of faith look like? It believes that Christ has been given to us and that Christ is righteous in His advent. That Christ is righteous in His advent. Notice verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. You ever heard righteousness speak? Well, I've heard Scripture speak. I've heard preachers speak. I don't think I've ever heard righteousness itself actually speak. But Paul wants us to see the power of the message of righteousness by faith in Christ alone. And so here he personifies it and he he gives it a human quality as if righteousness itself could speak. And if righteousness could call us to attention, this is what what it would say. What would it say? Paul here in verse 6, having quoted from Leviticus 18, now quotes from two other passages in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter eight, and then later Deuteronomy chapter thirty. So again, keep your keep your finger in uh, Romans chapter ten, and come back with me to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, Paul quotes from, and it's, he says, "Do not say in your heart, do not do not speak in your heart." And here he is quoting from Deuteronomy eight seventeen, and and we've already alluded to this verse. Israel was in the wilderness and they were eating manna for 40 years and they were in that situation, Moses says, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. And there's an internal kind of speaking that that if we are not brought to humility, that we will self-exalt ourselves. And we will say, I am great and I am supreme and I am magnificent and I deserve the righteousness that God would grant to me. This is my right. It's my position. In chapter 9, verse 4, he will say something similar. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out from before you. Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this line. There is a kind of speaking that we do internally in our hearts that is an ungodly and unrighteous kind of a speaking. And and, and and in fact when that little phrase do not say in your heart is used in the Old Testament almost always it's used of something that is evil something that is perverse something that is wrong something that is wicked. And here he's pointing particularly both in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Deuteronomy to the wickedness that asserts self-righteousness. Did you hear what I said? The wickedness that asserts self-righteousness. We say well I'm just proud. It's, it's really not I mean it's kind of a small thing. No friend. To be proud, to assert self-righteousness is the heart of wickedness. And, and, and Moses says, and then Paul quotes from him, do, do not suppose that you have any kind of righteousness that is due you, that is right for you because of your position, because you are so great. They had what they had because of grace alone. And, friends, nothing, nothing has changed since Israel was asserting these kinds of things in Deuteronomy. Isn't, isn't it always the self assertion of man that says, I, I, I am, I am self sufficient, I am righteous, I am good? I'm not so bad. I'm not so wicked. I'm, I'm not as bad as that person. It's not a matter of, are, are you as bad as that person? The issue is, are you as righteous as God? Slightly different standard. And that's why there's no boasting in anyone, no boasting in anything except the person of Jesus Christ, which is why Paul says what he does in Romans 15, 17, Therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. It's only in Christ that I will boast. I will boast in nothing else except Jesus Christ. Having warned his readers then against presumption by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8 Paul then gives us another quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Do not say in your heart and now he quotes from Deuteronomy 30, who will ascend to heaven that is to bring Christ down? Who who will ascend to heaven to bring Christ down? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is telling his hearers of the importance of of obedience to the law and the covenantal blessings that will come through obedience. So he says this in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 30, If you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn from the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul, he says, um, verse 9, that God will prosper you abundantly. If you you want that prosperity, you need obedience. And so the question might be, well, where, where will we get this law? And and, Mo, and Moses says, verse eleven: For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It's not difficult. In other words, you can attain it. We would know you can attain it through Christ by faith. You can attain it. And notice he says it's not out of reach. Now later in the in the chapter he will say it's nearby, it's close, it's at hand, it is attainable. And and what might the Israelite do? Notice he says in verse 12, it is not in heaven, this law, the commandments, the provision of righteousness that they need, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Do, Do I need to go to heaven to get this law? Do I need to go to heaven to get righteousness? Remember, this is chapter 30, the end of chapter 29 Paul says in verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So there are some things that are secret. There's some inner Trinitarian conversation. There's there's a a knowledge about um, the infinitude of God, the eternality of God that is beyond us, that is incomprehensible to us, that has not been revealed to us. We don't know. And there's a lot about God that we do not know. And he says, so the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some things that are kept secret from us. But... The things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. God has revealed Himself to us. It's in this law, this book, and we have it. And so Moses says, chapter 30, verse 12, you don't have to go to heaven. If you want righteousness and if you understand what God says, you don't have to go to heaven to get it. And Moses applies excuse me, Paul applies that statement by Moses to to Jesus Christ. That righteousness comes through faith. Just as no Israelite needed to go to heaven to get the law, so no one needs to go to heaven to get Christ to be our righteousness. In fact, he'll say, Romans 10.8, that the righteousness we need is near. It is not distant. It is not far off. And we know that we don't need to go to heaven for Christ because of the incarnation. Christ has already come. He came to us before we even knew we needed Him. Not only before we wanted Him, but before we had an awareness of our sin, before, before we had a conscious thought, He made provision for the coming of Christ and He came. In fact, this is this is what the apostle emphasizes. Even at the beginning of the letter, one of the very first things he says in this letter, Romans chapter one verses two and three, speaking about the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his Son. Watch this, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Those words concerning his son concerning the second member of the eternal godhead the second member of the trinity who was born is perhaps one of the most remarkable statements the world has ever known that god took on flesh And we go, yeah, yeah, Terry, that's okay. I mean it's that's the hypostatic union and it's the kenosis of God. He emptied himself of all you know, taking on manhood. We we get that. No, no, friend. God became man. Before you knew that you had a problem, he became man so that he could be both God and man, truly God not diminished in any capacity in His deity, while on earth, still possessing all of the attributes of the Godhead without any diminishment, without any lessening, and still at the same time also being truly man in every sense, fully flesh, apart from the fact that He had no sin nature with which He was born. And He is that because as the infinite eternal God, now He can absorb the wrath of God and pay for an infinite debt of sin, and as man He can stand in our place. A bull can't stand in our place because it's not a man. A goat can't stand in our place because it's not a man. God looks at that blood from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and He merely says that will do for now, but it won't ever last eternally. But Christ's blood comes from an eternal covenant. It is an eternal blood with eternal significance. It took the incarnation to accomplish that, and we don't have to go to God to get Him. He brings Himself down on His own. Listen to what Michael Reeves writes in his outstanding book, Rejoicing in Christ. Now here's the wonder of the Son of Man. The loving relationship that the Son has always enjoyed with the Father, He now brings to us. When He becomes a man, for the first time a human being enjoys the Son's own fellowship with and standing before the Father. In Jesus, for the first time, there is a human being living in perfect fellowship with God. Loving God with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving His neighbor as Himself he is the first ever to keep and fulfill the law of God. And no one had to go to heaven to get him. At our house we have something of a, I'll call it a nightly ritual. About 7 o'clock most evenings, Regina will say to me something like, um, you seen the cat? I said, well, yeah, I saw the cat when I came home, but he took off again and who knows where he is. Okay. So she goes out outside and I hear her, Jack! That's not you, Jack. That's our cat. Jack Workman is actually a little bit offended that we call Jack Jack our cat, but anyway. um, So she's out there calling, Jack! Jack! He's a cat. No Jack. 8 o'clock, 8.30. You seen the cat? No. Is he still not in the house? No. Jack! 10 o'clock. Where's that cat? I don't know. Garage door up. Jack! Now one of the things we've done is we trick him. And so he has a favorite food. It's a kind of a wet food. And we never feed it to him until the end of the day. And he knows if he wants his favorite food, he's got to come when we call. And eventually, every night, he comes in and he heads straight for the food bowl. The only way to get Jack. To come is to trick Him. Oh friend, it is not so with Jesus Christ. Nobody has to compel Him to come. Nobody has to deceive Him into coming. Nobody has to trick the Father in saying, If you do this, if you send Jesus, then then we'll give you this. Oh friend, this all initiates within, within the sovereign, divine, eternal plan of God. It's His plan, not ours. And well before we needed Him, the plan was set in place, and He came. Not compelled, except by His own love. Christ's righteousness is revealed in His advent How also is Christ righteous for those who believe Christ's righteousness is also in His resurrection. Instead of saying, I need to go to heaven to get Jesus Christ to come down and get my righteousness, someone else might say, I have to go to the grave to raise Christ from the dead to be my righteousness. And so Paul Paul quotes in Romans 10 verse 7, again from Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, after he says it's not in heaven, verse 13, it says, nor is it, the law and righteousness, is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Who will go to the ends of the earth? Who will go beyond any place where any man has ever gone? Who will go into the most inaccessible place in order to get the righteousness that we need from the law? And Paul adapts that. Instead of using the word sea, uses the word abyss. Abyss is the place of the dead. Who will go into the place of the dead? Who will go into the grave to find Jesus Christ, to compel Him to come up? Well, no one needs to go to the grave because the grave is empty. He was there, but He's no longer there. He is not captivated by the grave. He is not captivated by death. He is not kept by those things. And again, just as just as the apostle points in Romans chapter 1 to the advent of Jesus Christ as one of the primary first things that he wants to to make our attention drawn by or draw our attention to, he also says this in Romans 1 verse 4, who, speaking about Jesus Christ, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. What are the important things we need to know about Jesus Christ? is his advent and his resurrection. And this is our this is our truth. This is where this is where life is. This is our hope. And so putting verses six and seven together, we can simply say this as the commentator does The heights have been scaled, and the depths have been plumbed, for Christ has come down into the world of humanity and has been raised from the dead to attain the, the status of uprightness before God. No one is being asked to bring about an incarnation or a resurrection. One is asked only to accept in faith what has already been done for humanity and to associate oneself with Christ incarnate raised from the dead. The quest that we have for righteousness is not a mystical quest to the ends of the universe and where will we find it? No, it is in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has come and made himself known to men and available to men. All men simply need to do is to believe in him. We must simply trust in him. And there's one other means by which Christ demonstrates his righteousness. It's given to us in verse 8. Christ's righteousness is to all who believe through faith. Paul asks the question what does it say? And here he applies um, the text from Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Israelite doesn't need to go to heaven. He doesn't need to go across the sea looking for the law. He says, it is nearby. Notice what it says in Deuteronomy 30.14. The word is very near you. It's in your mouth. In fact... You know this law because He says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, He says this is the very thing that you need to be teaching, right? These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart and you will teach them diligently to your sons and you shall Talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and put them as frontals on your forehead. You you should be surrounded by this word. It is on your lips. You are speaking. As you're teaching and discipling and training your children, you're speaking the very thing that you need for righteousness. And it is in your heart. This is... This is the transforming work of the gospel. It it changes us from the inside out. I think that's anticipating the new covenant when He takes through the gospel and through Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, He takes a a heart of stone and He makes it a pliable and soft heart of flesh. We're changed from the inside out These are the words that are on our lips. These are the words that are in our hearts. The law transforms them. The law changes them. The law was their life. And friends, notice what the Apostle says as he comes to a conclusion in verse 8. It's nearby. You don't have to go looking for it. It's accessible. It's attainable. That is the word of faith. It's the word of faith. What is near is the word of faith. It's the message which calls for faith. We have in in Christ the message that tells us about righteousness that is granted only through faith and it invites and compels faith in Christ. One simply needs to believe. And Paul says this is the very message which we are preaching. There is only one message that we can preach that will bring about righteousness and it is this message which is rooted in Christ descended from heaven and ascended from the grave. And don't miss this point also. This is the message that Paul preaches because all men are responsible to believe this message. From the standpoint of man, they are able to respond, they are able to believe, they must believe, and in fact if they don't believe... They have no excuse. There's no one who can say, I didn't know. I didn't understand. I didn't comprehend. I was righteous enough on my own. There is no one who has any excuse that can stand before the Lord on the day in which all men will stand before God and say, I have an excuse that you need to accept and bring me into your presence. There is no excuse. The only thing that will bring anyone to life, to having righteousness, is this word of faith. The only thing that will bring is the message of salvation by grace in Christ alone through faith. Nothing else will work. And notice what Paul says. And this is the message we are preaching. This is what we preach. And friends, what... What Paul preached hasn't changed. This is is what we also preach. Paul preached this message because he will tell us in verse 14, how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? It needs someone to proclaim. It needs someone to say, this is the message. This is the way to righteousness. And friends, that hasn't changed. Now did you, you also think about this? It's not just that the Apostle Paul gets to preach it, but we get to declare it as well. We who were unrighteous on our own, but get to be conveyors of what righteousness is to those who do not believe. Every person in this room, apart from the coming of Christ will be in this room or a similar room one final time in a casket. Every person you see today, you go to the grocery store across the street, you go get a sandwich after lunch, maybe you stop by the hospital to see a friend, you go outside and see your next door neighbor, every person you see is headed for a casket. Some of them are going to be there soon. Some of them, we're going to say, are going to be there soon because we understand their age and and there's a limit to how long this body can live. And they're, they're approaching that end. Some of them are going to be in that casket way before what we think the limit is. Some of the caskets are very small, aren't they? because someone dies what we think in an untimely way and some of those whom we're going to see who are destined for a casket do not believe in Jesus Christ and they may be approaching the end of life and their foot as it were is taking one final step and they're about to plunge into the eternal abyss from which there is no retrieving them And in His grace, God says, I have a message by which that person can be plucked out. And you get to tell it. Are you kidding me? Not that I get to be the one that saves them, but I get to be the one that tells them this is the truth of life. This is the means out of death and to life. This is the means of, of being declared righteous by God. He uses us. How can we not do what Paul says here to preach the message of faith? There is life in Christ. And Christ alone And the one whose foot is dangling over the edge, if he falls in, he has no excuse. Well, friends, don't we want to be among those who will declare to them the means and hope of life for them? We like excuses. We use excuses regularly I'm not educated enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough experience. I don't know where to begin. It's just too difficult. I'm not good enough. I don't have any luck. It's not the right time. Nobody believes in me. People are just holding me back. I'm afraid of what others might think. I'm afraid of making a mistake. I just don't know the right people. It's too risky. I've tried. It can't be done. I just can't deal with all these problems. I'm just not creative enough. Excuses, excuses, excuses. We like them, we use them, but friends, when it comes to believing and having faith in Jesus Christ, there are no excuses. There's none that will stand up. There's no excuse for the nation of Israel. No Israelite can say, I wasn't chosen, God can't condemn me. No Gentile, no person anywhere ever has been able to say, I wasn't chosen, God can't condemn me. There are no excuses. Salvation has been made available by grace uh, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And friends, notice again verse 8, Christ has come near. He has come near with the righteousness that we need. Christ is the provision of the righteousness that was anticipated by the law and demanded by the law and Christ gave it through His obedience to the law. The righteousness that we need is near. It is here. The question is not whether or not God chose us. We don't know. That's part of the mystery of God. That's part of the secret of God's Godhead. What we do know is that if you are hearing this message, you can respond. You must respond. Friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I compel you, there is nothing you will ever do. One day you will, like me, have to stand before God's throne and there will be no excuse that will be acceptable to God except faith in Christ alone. If you do not believe, I urge you and compel you, believe today in Christ as your Savior. You may be here this morning and you say, Oh, well, I think I'm a Christian. A friend, are you? Has your life really been changed by Jesus Christ? You must believe in Him. You must must turn away from your sin and you must turn towards Jesus Christ. Embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and follow after Him. Friend, is that your position? Do you have your unrighteousness removed and has Christ been provided as your righteousness? There's no excuse except believing in Christ alone. Our Father, we thank You for the reminder of the simplicity of the Gospel. There is a sense in which it is complex. The complexity, though, is mostly in how these things fit together in the Godhead. How it is that You are sovereign and we are responsible. We don't understand that. But for us, the issue just really is very, very simple. We are sinners. Christ came. Christ died. Christ was resurrected. Christ and the message of His righteousness is near to us. And if we believe in Him, He will grant His righteousness to us. Father, might we rest in that? might the glory of the righteousness that has been granted to us be a delight to us this morning. And might we be bold in declaring this righteousness to those whom we come across this day who might be on the very precipice of hell. We pray these things in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. As we conclude this morning, I'm going to ask if Amy Palmer would come up here one more time. And you don't have to say anything this time. We have a certificate of baptism for you and a small gift. You can stay there. And uh, so you can uh, enjoy that. We want to share that with you. And then I'm going to ask you to stay there so people can come by and greet you. So you do have to talk to the people that come to you. I think you can do that. Um, Would you come? Would you stand with me? I'll give us a benediction prayer and then would you come and embrace Amy and thank her for her clear testimony and rejoice with her in the work of Christ that has saved her from sin and the work of Christ in which she is now obedient through baptism would you pray with me it's been a been a rich weekend And a rich day, Lord, to worship you. Our hearts are just full of gratitude gratitude for salvation, gratitude for righteousness, gratitude for a Savior who came, gratitude for a Savior who's resurrected. Gratitude for a righteousness that is nearby. Gratitude for a righteousness that is saving us. We are grateful, particularly our Father this morning, for the salvation that Amy has experienced. We have prayed for her, many of us, since before her birth. And you have seen fit to extend grace to her. It's really overwhelming. And we thank you. We thank you that this is something that she has experienced. It's something that many of us have experienced as well. Might she grow in that grace and righteousness that she has received. Might she always only know what it means to be a a follower who loves to follow Jesus Christ. And might that have radical effect on her life. Might we be helpers of her to lead her in that direction. And might we be bold to speak of this message of faith, this word of faith to those who don't know it yet that they might come to know it. And we pray these things, Father, thanking you in Christ's name. Amen.